Good morning. I just want to apologize for the color of my shirt. I cannot believe it. I thought about going shirtless when I realized it, but Sam said no way. So forget that. It's embarrassing. However, I would say this. Uh, next week, a couple of my co-workers, Isaiah and Jared, would like to wear green and gold. In fact, we have a little bet about green and gold next week. So if by chance, and it's going to happen, the Packers win and you have something that would look good on them, feel free to drop it by my office this week because I would love to dress them completely in green and gold next week. It would be my honor. Uh, just a couple quick uh, announcements before we pray. Uh, it's already been mentioned, but we start off our Sunday school hour. I never do this, but I'm doing it today. Um, find a Sunday school class, but if you don't have one, there is one on missions, and it's going to be in the sanctuary this week, and then a classroom over there the next week. And this week, one of our own missionaries, Mitch Cooper, is sharing, and next week, our intern, Jorge Santana, is sharing, so you might want to take advantage of that. And then one more announcement. I never do announcements, but one more. Uh, Thursday... At 7 p.m. at Wausau West High School, Dr. Ed Stetzer is speaking. It isn't a Highland event, but it's a community event. And Dr. Ed Stetzer from the Billy Graham Association and Wheaton College is going to be speaking on how to be an evangelical in an age of outrage. A good topic, and he is an exceptional scholar so 7 p.m. Wausau West on Thursday. You might want to take advantage of that. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father God, as we continue for two more weeks our study in 1 Thessalonians, and today in chapter 5, 12 to 15, we pray that you would take your inspired and errant word and you would impart it to our hearts, apply it to our lives that as James warns, we may not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. Father God, we ask that you would transform us, change us. Lord, we know that you accept us as we are, but we also know full well that you never, ever intend to leave us as we are. But with each passing hour and day and week and month and year, you desire us to be transformed, to become more like your son, more in the image of your son, Jesus. So, Father, we ask this morning that we would take the next step in our relationship with your son and impart your word to our lives for your glory and our betterment. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. In a book entitled Ecclesia, it's a Greek word that means church, the author talks about a friend of his named Bob. Bob was an itinerant preacher. He was part of an organization that goes to college, university campuses and looks for an opportunity in sororities, fraternities, and large lecture halls to share salvation, which is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's believing in the finished work of Christ. 
His death as the payment of our sin, his resurrection as evidence of life after the grave, and confessing and receiving Christ. And so that was Bob's goal, and he went from college or university to college to university. On one particular day, he got to the university he was speaking at quite early. He had been a college athlete, and like many, he wanted to stay in shape, so he put on his sweat clothes, went up to the gym. He saw an intramural pickup basketball game, and he became a part of it. He was guarding someone who was about his size, and the guy he was guarding was handsy. Always hand checks, elbows everywhere. Bob got hit in the stomach, he got hit in the chest, he got hit in the shoulders. Time and again, he got hit in the head. And he kept saying to himself, remain cool, keep your cool. But after about 40 minutes of getting poked and jostled and hit, he had had enough and he poked the guy in the nose in the name of Jesus. <laughs> and of course, uh, a conversation that was rather heated erupted and this college student went stomping off and, and Bob didn't think anything of it. The guy had it coming, you know. Besides which, Bob only hit him once and he had been hit time and time and time again. That night, Bob had the opportunity to speak in the largest frat house on the campus. The place was packed and he was talking and he was sharing about the love of Jesus. He had been going for about 15 minutes and suddenly that very player stood up. And he said, frat brothers, don't believe a word he says. He's a phony. He's a fake. He may talk about being a Christ follower, but he's not. Don't believe him. And as you can imagine, that night did not go well. The rest of his presentation did not go well. And as I read that in the book Ecclesia, I asked myself some hard questions. If people are evaluating the bride of Christ, the church, if people are evaluating Christ based on my life, what does the evaluation end up looking like? If people are evaluating Christ based on how I act behind a steering wheel, if people are evaluating Christ based on how I act at work, what do they think of Christ? If people are evaluating Christ based on how I act in sports or recreation or out and about, what do they think of Christ? And it's not just me, it's also you. We need to think carefully about how we're living because Christ is the reason we're here. And sharing about Christ is a command that we all have. And being witnesses for Christ, if we know Jesus as Savior, is our responsibility. And what kind of Christ are we portraying to the world? And are we being productive as kingdom builders? Are we being productive advancing God's kingdom to a world that is lost. 
As I thought about all this and I thought about being productive, I thought about a high school student. Frankly, he didn't do very well this quarter. He partied more than he studied. He managed something far below his capacity and capability. And he knew the day of reckoning would come when the report card would arrive and his mom and dad would say, let me see the report card. And that moment came and he handed it over and he thought he would hit them with a preemptive strike. And so as they looked at the grades and were horrified of how low below capacity and capability he actually achieved, he looked at them and said, what do you think? Is it heredity or home environment? <laughs> That's pretty clever, isn't it? Pretty clever. But the truth is, he was not productive. He was acting in a way below capacity and below capability. And today's text is Paul being concerned about the church. The church not being productive. The church acting low, below capacity, below capability. You know the context of 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. The context is all about Jesus returning. The context is that Jesus is imminently, which doesn't mean instantly, it means at any moment, maybe today, maybe tomorrow, maybe a thousand years from now, we don't know. Jesus is imminently coming. And how will he find his church? How will he find you? How will he find me? How will he find us? Will we be alert? Will we be productive? Will we be on point? Will we be ready for the moment of Christ's return? None of us want to be found engaged in sinful activities. None of us want to be found engage in self-focused activities. We want to be kingdom productive, kingdom impacting. And so that's what today's text is all about. I want to pick up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Let's read verses 12 to 15. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you, and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, that's the second time. So he's clearly writing to church. He's writing to Christ followers. And we urge you, church, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to everyone. As you and I begin, we read in verse 12 about those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. That word labor, aktaktas, refers to hard work. It refers to manual labor. It refers to getting your hands dirty. Any church that is not messy is not a church engaged in kingdom work. Messiness is evidence of impacting a world that desperately needs Christ. 
And the text calls us to labor, to engage, to do hard ministry. I think of a pastor of yesteryear. It is said that whenever he sat in his desk and he would manuscript his sermons and he would read commentaries and he would study theologies and he would spend time on his knees in prayer, anytime he went into his study, he put on boots to remind him that he is laboring, laboring for the kingdom of God. And we've got to step back and ask ourselves, are we laboring for the kingdom? Is there hard work? Is there effort on our part on a regular basis, extending, advancing the kingdom? Are we laboring for the kingdom? I remember in grad school, I had several world-class professors, actually quite a few, but two I will mention today, Dr. Wayne Grudem and Dr. D.A. Carson, and they weren't really on a regular basis friends, so they didn't compare notes. I just heard them in different classes. And these two regularly told us graduate students that if you're going to preach for every minute that you preach, there better be an hour in study. That is, if you were going to preach for 35 minutes, there better be 35 minutes of time, or 35 hours of time in the Word, studying, preparing to preach to God's people. That's work. And although maybe those standards cannot adequately work in someone who is a lay leader, The implication of work still applies. We are to labor for the kingdom. We are to work hard. What the world does not need is more fluff. What the world does not need is individuals who wing it. What the world does not need is teachers who are unprepared to open up and divide God's word. The idea is we need work, we need labor. The older I get, the more often I'm privileged to disciple younger pastors. I've discipled many, many in central Wisconsin and others across the state in our denomination. And I love spending time with younger pastors. I just, I just love it. But the one thing that sometimes causes me with younger or older pastors, it just kind of rubs me the wrong way. As if one of them says something like this. I'm really ticked off at the elders in my church. They think I ought to work like 45 hours a week. And I bite my tongue and I pray a little bit and then I speak. And I say, you know, you're talking to people who are working 50 and 55 hours a week. You're talking to people that you want to show up in a worship service. You're talking to people who you want to volunteer in the church and outside the church. Add up all those hours and then stop complaining and labor. Labor for the kingdom. That's what Paul is concerned with. He wants when Jesus returns, 
He wants to find a church that's engaged internally and externally. He wants to find a church that is imminently ready at any moment for his return and that we are building up the body of Christ and we are impacting a world. And those kind of leaders are the ones that are worthy to be followed. So verse 12 says, they rightly are over you in the Lord. Those kind of leaders are given leadership because they're leading in the right way. But notice the phrase, in the Lord. That governs, they are over you. In the Lord. That means if you lead, if I lead, it's not about our preference. It's not about our desire. It's not about our goal. It's in the Lord. It's about what the Lord wants. And when we lead, we are to lead in a fashion that when Jesus returns imminently at any moment, he finds the church engaged in doing what he desires both internally and infectious externally to reach a world that is lost. And we have to ask ourselves, are we leading in that kind of way? Are we laboring in that kind of way? I love the polity of the Evangelical Free Church of America. This happens to be an Evangelical Free Church. I love our polity because we allow leaders to lead and yet there's not unchecked power. I think of Lord Acton, the historian from the 19th and early 20th century, he said power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And it does outside the church and in the church. So there needs to be checks and balances and we have to have neither the extreme of everything needs to be voted on nor the extreme that certain people can run roughshod and do what they want. We need a congregationally led under the lordship of Christ empowering leaders to lead but always with the accountability of the church. And so in the free church, we require votes in at least six areas. It could be more, but six are required. We get to vote on the hiring and firing of the senior pastor. We get to vote on that. We don't get to vote on the hiring of other staff or the firing because in a free church, Generally, the elders view themselves as having one employee, the senior pastor, and then the rest of the staff works with the senior pastor to do the bidding of the elders who do the bidding of the congregation who does the bidding of the church. We vote on bylaw and constitutional changes and an annual budget. We vote on membership. We always vote on the elders. So every year in this church, we vote on every elder. And then if God forbid we were ever to dissolve, we'd vote on that as well. That kind of leadership, I believe, is what Jesus expects when he imminently returns, at any moment returns, and he wants the church engaged internally and infectious externally. And that kind of leadership, verse 13, is to be esteemed very highly in love because of their work. Now, I'm not going to spend much time on verse 13 because, frankly, Highland rocks at this. We already have this down pat. We're very good at encouraging leadership, esteeming them well. 
And so well done, church. We do that well. So we're going to move on to verses 14 and 15. And in verses 14 and 15, we see that all of us have a responsibility one to another to spur one another on to take the next step in our relationship with Jesus Christ. So verses 14 and 15 again read as follows. And we urge you, church, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. We'll start in verse 14. It says, admonish the idle. Now, we often think of the idol as an individual who needs a swift kick, someone who needs to be pushed, someone who is not doing what they ought to do. It's actually a military word. It actually means a wall, someone who is absent without leave. It might be a, a father or a husband who is not taking spiritual leadership in the home. What does it say? Admonish them, encourage them to, to take the next step in their leadership. It might be a wife or a mother who is not nurturing and caring for the children or grandchildren or, or husband or caring for the community as she ought. Admonish the idol. It might be a student who instead of engaging herself or himself is having a party atmosphere at school. It says, admonish, encourage, push forward the idol. But it means more than just someone who doesn't work hard. It also means a busy body. That's how Paul uses the word in 2 Thessalonians 3.11, which says this, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness... Not busy at work, but busy bodies. This is a person who's not engaged in what they should be, but they're engaged in other things, or it actually has the idea of a control freak. Someone who believes that they own a certain area of ministry, and if everyone doesn't go through them and get their approval, and they're okay, then they have the right to protest. What does Paul say? He says, admonish admonish that individual. Why? Because Jesus is coming back. Because too much is lost if we're not productive, if we're not engaged. He's coming back imminently and he wants to find a productive church doing ministry internally and being infectious externally. He wants a productive church. As I thought of productive and keeping your eye on the goal. I thought of the World Series in 1957. In 1957, the Milwaukee Braves beat the Yankees and were world champions. Now, if you know anything about the Yankees in 1957, you know that their catcher was Yogi Berra. And Yogi Berra is the type of guy that have Yogiisms. It ain't over till it's over. Okay, that's pretty clever. He has a lot of these. And Yogi was known for incessant chatter. He would just talk and talk and talk. And he would encourage his teammates. And he would try and distract the other team. 
So when they would come up to bat, he'd tie and distract them. Well, the cleanup hitter on the Milwaukee Braves was Hank Aaron, hammering Hank. And he came up and Yogi set into him. Yogi said, Hank, oh, Hank, 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 Hank. You're holding the bat wrong. You got to be able to read the trademark on the bat. You're holding it all wrong. And Hank didn't pay any attention and hit the next pitch over the left field bleachers. And he rounded third and stepped on home plate, looked back at Yogi and said, I didn't come up here to read. He came up with a purpose. He came up productive. He kept his eye on the goal. And we've got to ask ourselves, why are we here on earth? Biblically, why are we here? Is it so that we have all of our own fulfillment and all of our own joys and all of our own needs met? Or biblically, are we here to advance the gospel? Biblically, are we here to bring glory to God? Biblically, are we here that God might be exalted and others might know of the light of Christ? We are called to be productive. I want to illustrate it this way. I stole this illustration from YouTube. That by itself is a miracle. I don't, I don't watch YouTube. So if you send me a YouTube video there is exactly a 1% chance that I'm going to open it and watch it. I always watch yours. It's the people beside you and in front of you. I never watch theirs. If you send me something to read, I will read it very carefully. If you send me something to watch, I feel very guilty as I hit the delete button. But I did watch this particular YouTube, and I'm stealing the illustration from it. The illustration is of a rope. The rope represents your life. I want you to assume for a moment that this rope never ends. You know that my rope does end, but let's assume it does not end. And this rope represents your life here on earth and all of eternity. The yellow part represents here on earth. The rest represents all of eternity. The thousands, the millions, the billions, the trillions forever. And the yellow part represents here on earth. And how often have we noticed people focus only on the yellow part and they forget about the thousands and millions and billions and trillions and all of eternity. In fact, sometimes we're we only focus on the last little bit. Those retirement years, everything is focused on retirement. And we ought to. Proverbs 6 says, prepare well for retirement. I get that. But we focus just so much on just this little thing. And we get so wrapped up. We have myopic vision about life here on earth. And the most healthy among us is only going to live at most 110 years, probably less. And we have thousands and millions and billions and trillions and all of eternity. And the Lord says that what we do for the kingdom with the right attitude actually comes with extra eternal rewards. 
for the thousands and the millions and the billions and the trillions and all of eternity. And yet sometimes this is all we focus on. And we forget that Jesus is coming back. And Jesus wants to find his church engaged. To be powerful in the church and to be infectiously powerful outside the church. And he's coming imminently at any moment. And he wants to find us alert, on point, engaged. And I've got to ask myself, how am I doing in that? And how about you? I think of Jesus. In Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that entangles. Let us throw off the sin that weighs us down. And let us run the race with endurance keeping our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And then notice this. He ignored the shame. He took on the cross. And now he's seated at the right-hand side of the throne of the Father. What did Jesus do? He endured the cross. He ignored the shame. He focused on eternity. And the result is now he is seated at the right-hand side of the throne of the Father. And so what does the author of Hebrews say? He says, keep my eyes on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Run with endurance towards Jesus. Live my life with a vision of eternity. Run towards Jesus. Because someday Jesus is coming back. And he wants to find an engaged church that is powerful internally and infectious externally. He wants to find an engaged church. No wonder, Paul says, admonish the idle. They're the won't do's. The idle are the won't do's. The won't-dos are the individuals who are too engaged in life and too engaged in secular activities to be engaged in sacred activities. And what's the text say? Admonish the idol. Encourage them to get in the game, to stop being a won't-do and become a do-do for the kingdom. The text then goes on to say, encourage the faint-hearted. That word faint-hearted literally means little-souled. The faint-hearted are the individuals who want to get in the game, but they're too afraid. They're too shy. They're, they're unsure if they have a spiritual giftedness that would allow them to engage. Well, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, the Bible says that you are spiritually gifted in a special way to do works of ministry. And so it says, encourage the faint-hearted. Come alongside somebody. See somebody who's not engaged and say, hey, let's do ministry together. Let's go to the Bible study together and then find a way to serve together and to do ministry one with another. The, the 60 one another passages in the New Testament are all about coming alongside the faint-hearted linking arms and moving forward for the kingdom. Admonish the idols. They're the 
won't do's. Encourage the faint-hearted. Those individuals are the want-to's. And then finally, it says that we are to help the weak. They're the can't-do's. That word weak is an interesting one. It might refer to a brand new believer, but more likely, it refers to a believer who has fallen pretty far into sin. It refers to somebody that the church might say, hey, let's just kick them to the curb. We've had enough of that individual. We've had enough of their propensity for sin. Instead, it says, help the weak. Help the one that has fallen far. Pray for that one. Come alongside. Don't ignore the sin. Don't ignore the sin, but come alongside. Don't be judgmental. Don't be arrogant. And put your arm around that individual and say, hey, we got to take the next step in our relationship with Jesus Christ, which means we need to confess and turn from the sin and go towards the Lord in righteousness. Admonish the idle. Help the faint-hearted. Encourage the weak. This is what God expects to find in the church when Jesus returns imminently at any moment. He expects a church that is alive and on fire and impacting people in the church and being infectious in a positive way outside the church. And finally, Paul gives us these words in verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. You remember how I began the sermon? I know it was an eternity ago. It was about Bob who popped the guy in the nose. What did he do? He repaid evil for evil. And he lost his witness on that day on that campus. When Jesus returns imminently at any moment, maybe today, maybe tomorrow, maybe a thousand years from now, he wants to find a church that has work boots on, that is laboring for the kingdom, that is taking the next step, that is leading in a way that is always conditioned by the words, unto the Lord, or for the Lord. And he wants to find a church that admonishes the idle and encourages the faint-hearted and helps the weak. In all three cases, encouraging someone to take the next step as we all need to the next step in our relationship with Jesus Christ. He's coming back. He's coming back. And what is he going to find in my life? What is he going to find in yours? Let's pray. Father God, uh, we know your son is coming. We've been warned not to guess times and epochs and dates. We've been warned not to be overly focused on the exact moments. But we know your son is coming. And we want to be found on point, alert, engaged. As individuals, as families, as a church family. We want to be impacting in the church and impacting outside the church.
at work, where we recreate, in our neighborhoods. Father, empower us by your spirit to be ready and to labor for the kingdom. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.